Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And on your screen right now is the logo for the American National Football League. And I say American there because I know we have a lot of viewers and listeners from outside the United States who look at the word football and, well, quite frankly, don't think of American football. And who can blame them? My daughters watch football with me here in the United States and ask why it's called that since they so rarely use their feet. And realistically, it's not much of a ball. And I can't blame them for asking the question. Now, we don't usually talk about sports here in virtual reality. Early on in the series, we had a few videos on the topic. But in general, we're talking about software, technology, video games, pop culture, movies, television, under the lens of business and law. That's what I do. I'm a corporate transactions attorney. And frankly, sports doesn't usually have quite as many interesting lawsuits or legal questions as some of the other topics that I discuss, or at least not as I like to talk about them. Today is a bit different. And I'm leaving us on this logo screen for a little while because I think it's important to make a few disclaimers. What we're going to talk about today is an area of high sensitivity in the United States and elsewhere, and for good reason. But we're also going to be analyzing the lawsuit in question here using the same critical eye that I have analyzed every lawsuit that I've looked at in this space. And that does mean I'm going to be critical of certain aspects of the document. In fact, spoiler alert, I think there are major problems with how the story is presented by the plaintiff in the lawsuit, which doesn't take away from some of the points that he raises from the actual questions on a moral and ethical level that are facing the National Football League but it can take away from the strength of a legal argument. I will tell you that I think parts of this story are essentially designed for folks like me to cover them in lawsuit or other form rather than for the courts to be convinced of the validity of the claims. And that always, if you've been in virtual legality for a little while, rubs me a bit the wrong way. That's not really how I see the courts uh, needing to be used. I had this complaint with Epic versus Apple and other things that we have discussed. But understand that that critical complaint isn't talking realistically about the substance, the storytelling of what is put forth. Uh, and if you find that compelling, that's perfectly fine. My job is to sit here and tell you what I think of that as a legal document. And that's the analysis that we'll be engaged in. Now, that's a very long intro. And if you aren't interested in the National Football League or any of these questions, I don't blame you for walking out well before I'm even ending this disclaimer. But for those of you that stayed, let's talk about some substance. Former Dolphins coach Brian Flores files discrimination lawsuit against the NFL, the Giants, that's a team in the NFL, and others. Now, Brian Flores, in my opinion, is actually a pretty darn good coach. And I was very surprised when the Miami Dolphins fired him this offseason. It looked like he had the team moving in the right direction. Obviously, he felt he had the team moving in the right direction. And part of the impetus behind this suit, as we will see, appears to be the fact that he didn't get a job that he thought he had a really good chance for in this offseason when the NFL teams are firing coaches, hiring new coaches, and it looks like he's going to be on the outside looking in. That was before this lawsuit was filed. I will tell you from experience watching the National Football League operate uh, that when you have this kind of voice out there with a lawsuit, regardless of racial characteristics, this is the kind of person that they do blackball, they do ostracize, uh, because they are very conservative, not from a political perspective, but just in a risk allocation perspective, when folks start to speak out about any number of issues. And you can blame them for that. In fact, Brian Flores is going to blame them for that in certain important respects in the story he tells about the National Football League in his document. 
But as of right now, the assumption should be with a lawsuit like this file, Brian Flores is very unlikely to work in the NFL again. If that changes, that would be a surprise to me. But there are statements that we'll look at at the end of this video that suggest that he knows that. He filed this uh, shortly after not getting the job that he wanted to get with the New York Giants and has statements given to the media that suggest that he understands that this is probably going to put up a firewall between him and NFL coaching. So let's take a look at what he had to say, and we'll talk about some of the things that rub me the wrong way, not on substance here, but in form, politicizing what it is that you intend to bring to the court so that folks like me and other journalists will talk about those things. And it starts right on page one. So the very first thing we see, a couple of items. One, he names the rest of the teams in the National Football League as one of the potential defendants, but uses the John Doe term because what he's actually seeking here is not just a lawsuit about his own discrimination, because I would argue it's not as lucrative or punishing or effective of change if we're being giving the benefit of the doubt to this kind of action without that class action element. So he includes all the rest of the teams, doesn't know what kind of discrimination they were up to. So he essentially reserves the right to amend this in the future to cover those kinds of issues if a class is certified. Then he starts with a kind of evidentiary upfront. He says, sorry, I screwed this up and I will be doing a little light censoring of naughty verbiage for YouTube here as I do in this uh, particular space. You will see a few words here because NFL coaches, NFL general managers, they aren't as careful with language as I am. I double-checked and misread the text. I think they are naming Brian Dabble. I'm sorry about that. BB, which is Bill Belichick. And they say, this is Bill Belichick informing plaintiff Brian Flores three days before his interview with the New York Giants that Brian Dabble had already been selected for the job. And we'll see in texts how the plaintiff here, Brian Flores, feels that he has definitive proof that the New York Giants never really intended to interview him, and they were interviewing him to comply with a specific rule, the Rooney Rule, which we will talk about more fulsomely as we go through this document, that the NFL had put in place to mandate that these clubs, these teams, interview a minority candidate for a head coaching position. Then he has a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Morals cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. The law cannot make an employer love me, but it can keep him from refusing to hire me because of the color of my skin. And this is the kind of thing that I mean when I talk about things rubbing me the wrong way. It's a great quote. Have no problem with the quote overall. But when we talk about what a complaint actually is, what you are filing, the job of a complaint document is to not be superfluous. It's to explain what law you feel was violated and how the court can offer you redress for that violation. If we go and we look at the rules of pleading in national federal court, it's supposed to be a short and plain statement of the claim showing that the pleader is entitled to relief. And we get that covered again. Each allegation must be simple, concise, and direct. Now, You'll see this from time to time, rhetorical flourishes put up at the front, but I have to say, I haven't seen them in this kind of context with like an evidentiary pre-statement before the preliminary statement. And it's a little bit politicizing. It starts to look like a political activist document and not one that's going to establish, hey, these are the things that were done to me. These are the things that were done to the potential class. This is why they're illegal, and this is how the court can fix it. You start out very grandiose, sounds a little bit like a speech in a presidential election, and then the very first paragraph of your statement in this legal document is, 
As this class action complaint is filed on the first day of Black History Month, we honor the brave leaders that fought so hard to help break down racial barriers of injustice. Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, Frederick Douglass, Jackie Robinson, and Mamie Till, to name only a few. Now, I have no problem with the sentiment of this paragraph, but as a lawyer looking at this document, I would ask anybody, honestly, to tell me exactly what this is doing to help advance the court's understanding of what was done to this person and how the court can fix it. So this is all rhetorical flourish designed to get you in a mindset as a reader, designed to be reported on, but not leading you to that precise statement of what's at issue. Unfortunately, there's much more to be done, continues the preliminary statement. The NFL remains rife with racism. So we're starting to see what the claim is, and presumably there'll be storytelling about that. I can tell you that there is. Rules have been implemented, promises made, but nothing has changed. In fact, the racial discrimination has only been made worse by the NFL's disingenuous commitment to social equity. We'll see some references in this document to effectively a belief that the NFL is pandering and is not being honest when it puts things in the end zone and otherwise talks up things uh, during some of the difficulties that the United States has faced during the pandemic and, of course, before. As such, in the face of the risks associated with combating racism and injustice, and in particular, standing up to organizations as powerful as the NFL and its teams, Mr. Flores has determined that the only way to effectuate real change is through the courts where the NFL's conduct can be judged by a jury of Mr. Flores's peers. So he's asked for a class action. He's asked for a jury trial. Uh, and effectively, what you're getting here is a statement of the bravery of the plaintiff. All of this is fine. It's puffery but it's taking a little while to get to the crux of the matter. In certain critical ways, the NFL is racially segregated and is managed much like a plantation. Uh Uh-oh. It's 32 owners, none of whom are black, profit substantially from the labor of NFL players, 70% of whom are black. The owners watch the games from atop NFL stadiums in their luxury boxes, while their majority black workforce put their bodies on the line every Sunday, taking vicious hits and suffering debilitating injuries to their bodies and their brains while the NFL and its owners reap billions of dollars. Now, I don't know how you feel about American football. I don't know how you feel about the National Football League, but this, as basically your opening substantive paragraph, is certainly politically charged, and it's also fairly easily dispelled from a legal perspective, which is that not only are the players entered into contracts with the NFL teams that make up the NFL, But those contracts are negotiated by a union that represents them in a collective bargaining agreement that there is labor power at the NFL Players Association level. And framing it this way is pretty easily countered, which is not exactly what you want to do if you want to bring claims of substance and strength against a body like the NFL. But this is the kind of language that you do see folks that are upset at the NFL, how it operates, use out in the political landscape. So you can understand how this gets in here, but is it helpful to your legal claims? I would argue that it's not, and you can see the direction that some of this is going to go. Many players desire to coach for their post-playing careers. Others desire to work their way into management-level positions. And there's a number of bullets here suggesting that there aren't enough black head coaches, black offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, special teams coordinators, etc. These numbers come from a pool of players that is approximately 70% black, This is not by chance. Rather, the statistics above and those described throughout this complaint are the result of racial discrimination. Now, we're going to see this in a couple of places. 
I don't know how the NFL is going to defend itself, but one of the areas that jumps out at me is when you say, hey, there's 70% black players, these numbers, 19%, 25%, 9%, come from a pool of players, you are changing the denominator that the law is more likely to care about. It isn't just players that can be named a head coach or an offensive coordinator or a general manager. In fact, a lot of folks grow up doing the coaching track of football where they gain expertise actually coaching and really weren't a player at any substantive level. We see that throughout sports leagues of all manner in the United States and elsewhere. So it's important to understand that the pool of players is 70% black, but that isn't the only pool from which the NFL is drawing these particular positions. Also, it's illegal in the United States to actually have racial quotas and to appoint or hire folks based solely on that criteria. So the NFL has to be cautious about what it does to stay within the bounds of American law. And so they have taken certain steps and they're steps that I think are wrongheaded. We'll talk about that when we get to it, but they've taken certain steps to try to address this. One of the primary complaints in this document is effectively that the NFL, as well-meaning as it might be in certain respects, has failed and that the court should do more and force the NFL to do certain things that this plaintiff seeks to do. As we've talked about in virtual reality, there's going to be a problem there because courts in general don't like to force others to do things. And that's going to come to the fore as we look at this document. But overall, if you want to put a pin in one issue that I see just from a substantive level, it's that you can't just claim that the pool of employee possibilities, employee candidates, comes from the pool of players. So that is in of itself a somewhat problematic formulation for what the main claim here is going to be, which is that you can read bullets like this and numbers like this and imply racial discrimination when There isn't necessarily a ton of proof on the ground that someone is actively and intentionally acting racist towards one of these candidates. Now, they do have some quotes that are pretty useful in context. The NFL has effectively conceded this point. That's strong language. The point, of course, being that all of this is a result of racial discrimination. How did they concede it? Troy Vincent, the NFL Executive Vice President of Football Operations, recently stated that with regard to black head coaches, there is a double standard. It is part of the larger challenges that we have. But when you just look over time, it's over-indexing for men of color. These men have been fired after a winning season. How do you explain that? And the NFL might well have to go and try to explain why this is happening in a way that isn't racially discriminatory. It's a good quote for the plaintiff's claim here, but it's not a silver bullet. There's a double standard. These men have been fired after winning season raises a good question about how the NFL operates. One of the issues that we will also see in this document is that any given circumstance for any given candidate or any given head coach is something that is always informed by the context of that season, of that team, of various other things that relate to it. So one of the issues that I can see up front, and we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to the section on it, is actually certifying this as a class. Because Class actions are very useful if everybody's situated exactly the same way. The law doesn't want to combine disparate legal claims because that's not good for anybody. It's not good for the defendant. It's not good for the various plaintiffs because they aren't represented properly by the class. So the law looks at it and says, if you want to certify, you have to have a good number of people that are affected. You have to have people that are affected that have the same kind of claim. And here, I think one of the NFL's best defenses will be Every single circumstance here was different. Every set of interviews was different. We can talk about the differences if you like, but this can't be a class action. Let's talk about what happened to Mr. Flores specifically. That's one area of defense I would expect from the NFL. Similarly, Jonathan Bean, the NFL's senior vice president and chief diversity and inclusion officer stated, 
Any criticism we get for lack of representation at the GM and head coach positions we deserve, and if you look at it right now, we're grossly underrepresented. Remember, these quotes are said by the plaintiff to effectively concede that issues are are a result of racial discrimination, which I'm not quite sure how you get from the second quote. Certainly, you can be unhappy at an institutional level with the level of representation of all sorts of things at your head coach level, at your GM level. That doesn't necessarily mean that the lack of representation is a result of racism. And because your claim in this document is that it is, I'm not sure this is getting you very far either. But it does put this quote out there, and these are useful to have out there publicly. So there's value in this from the plaintiff's perspective, from the plaintiff's counsel's perspective, because The other thing that I would mention up front here in the introduction area of this document is that this is very unlikely to go to trial if the class gets certified or if this doesn't get dismissed out of hand, the NFL and its conservativeness, not Republican versus Democrat, but just aversion to risk will have them very averse to having any of their documentation revealed on any of these points. So if it survives that kind of potential dismissal, and there are reasons to believe that it could, although there's also reasons to believe it might well be dismissed, then the NFL, I think, will work very quickly to try to get this thing settled up as quickly as possible. Perhaps worst of all, in connection with its distribution of settlement monies to retirees who suffer from traumatic brain injury, the NFL insisted on applying so-called race norms, which is a very bad story and made the NFL look very bad. We'll talk about that when it's more fulsomely described later in this document. These are literal admissions of liability. Now, okay, there, lawyer, hold on. There's a double standard. These men have been fired after a winning season. How do you explain that? It's close, maybe, to a potential admission of liability. Lack of representation, that's not an admission of liability. The settlements in the race norming stuff, I don't believe accompanied by an admission of liability. And either way, what you quoted here is not a literal admission of liability in any respect. So again, If you're counsel to one of these documents, go hard for your client, zealously advocate, but don't lie. This is is just a lie. There are no literal admissions of liability in the prior three paragraphs. And this is trying to set up a, a, a check that you can't possibly cash with the court when you say these kinds of things. Section 11, even when black candidates get hired for head coaching positions, a rarity, they are discriminated against in connection with the terms and conditions of their employment and compensation and terminated even as far less successful white head coaches are retained. And they'll talk about this a little bit more fulsomely. Some of their math seems good. Some of it doesn't. But overall, the issue that they're going to have here is that head coaches, very highly paid executive positions are separately negotiated. And so your success in negotiating those kinds of things is essentially a function of your leverage, the team's leverage, how much it wants you, how much you want the job, and all sorts of things that go into that question. It's one of the areas that's very, very difficult to show a kind of systemic racism because, hey, everybody negotiated their contract separately through the help of agents. It has been nearly 20 years since the NFL implemented the Rooney Rule, You'll get a little description of it here. As first implemented, the Rooney Rule required NFL teams to interview at least one black person in connection with any head coach vacancy. The Rooney Rule has since been expanded to cover general manager and other front office positions, as well as assistant head coach and coordinator positions. Moreover, as it relates to head coach positions, teams are now required to interview two minority coaching candidates, at least one of whom must be interviewed in person. And this is the rule that I mentioned earlier. I think is potentially well-intentioned, but I have always found it fairly patronizing. And if we're being honest, racist in and of itself. 
these teams are going to be hiring basically who they want to hire. Uh, And oftentimes when a team fires a head coach, it's because they think there's another head coach that they would like better available for that vacancy. We'll see my Detroit Lions, my hometown Detroit Lions mentioned in a couple of places in this document for essentially violating this rule because they said they knew who they wanted to get. And it's always felt like teams operate in that fashion and that it's very easy to imagine those teams essentially having sham or token interviews with folks because the rule mandates that they do or they get fined and how bad that must feel for minority candidates who aren't realistically candidates. And that's the crux of this lawsuit is that appears to have happened to Brian Flores. And he took it as I probably would have in the same circumstance as essentially an affront to his time, to his resources and and to his well-being. So he continues in paragraph 13 saying the Rooney rule may well have been, may have been well-intentioned, although it's hard to attribute benevolence to the NFL. However, well-intentioned or not, what is clear is that it is not working. It is not working because the numbers of black head coaches, coordinators, and quarterback coaches are not even close to being reflective of the number of black athletes on the field. Now, highlighted that in red, because again, we have a denominator problem. Why would the law be concerned with the percentage of folks in those positions matching the percentage of folks in the athletes on the field? That's not the way the law works. The law requires, in general, that you have a fair opportunity to potentially get hired. Uh, And if you've got kind of evidence potentially of unequal outcomes, that can serve as a certain amount of circumstantial evidence to a problem that then has to be proven as actually existing. But having the denominator of athletes on the field match up with these different jobs and roles doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, And so I highlight this in red because the law isn't necessarily going to have this denominator be the one that matters. The Rooney rule is also not working, says the plaintiff, because management is not doing the interviews in good faith, and it therefore creates a stigma that interviews of black candidates are only being done to comply with the Rooney rule rather than in recognition of the talents that the black candidate possesses. I think that's a great point. I felt this way about the Rooney rule since it was implemented, that you can't help but look at that and say, is that a real interview looking at something on the outside? And I don't think that's fair to these candidates. I think that's a very good point. But it's one of the areas where I think if this lawsuit has any effect, it might be to actually end the Rooney rule because the NFL doesn't have to take this step. The NFL voluntarily decided that this was a good idea to try to get more minority candidates into these roles. If it isn't working and it's creating an exposure item for them as it is in this lawsuit, I think the NFL will be examining it very closely as to whether or not it even makes sense to go out on this prospective legal limb and not get any effect in terms of the folks that have these jobs and make itself potentially liable to folks like Brian Flores who point out that a token interview is not a good thing when we talk about federal and local law. In January 2022, Mr. Flores, who spent three years as the head coach of Defendant Miami Dolphins Limited, found himself without a job. He was fired by the Dolphins after leading the team to its first back-to-back winning season since 2003. The purported basis for his termination was allegedly poor collaboration. In reality, the writing had been on the wall since Mr. Flores' first season as head coach of the Dolphins when he refused his owner's directive to tank for the first pick in the draft. Indeed, during the 2019 season, Miami's owner Stephen Ross, Michigan Wolverine, told Mr. Flores that he would pay him $100,000 for every loss, and the team's general manager, Chris Greer, told Mr. Flores that Steve was mad that Mr. Flores' success in winning games that year was compromising the team's draft position. If you have seen uh, Major League, 
the baseball movie from, I think it's the 80s, uh, you know this kind of narrative, this story, where the owner wants the team to lose for some reason or another. Here, allegedly draft pick position. In that particular movie, I believe it was because that was going to help a relocation deal to move the team to a different place. And in the movie, the team decides to win despite the owner. Here, the coach says, no, I'm not going to do that. But understand, this is the kind of thing that's going to demand proof. And it's a bombshell in a document like this. One of the things that plaintiff Brian Flores is going to try to establish here is that he was only fired and all of this trouble only started because he wouldn't abide by illegal or unethical requests of the ownership group. It wasn't his fault for doing his job well. And that's the story being told. And Stephen Ross is going to be in a lot of trouble if this turns out to be true. After the end of the 2019 season, Mr. Ross began to pressure Mr. Flores to recruit a prominent quarterback in violation of the league tampering rules. Shortly after he arrived to a yacht, Mr. Ross told Mr. Flores that the prominent quarterback was conveniently arriving at the marina. Mr. Flores refused the meeting and left the yacht immediately. From that point forward, Mr. Flores was ostracized and ultimately he was fired. He was subsequently defamed throughout the media and league as he was labeled by the Dolphins brass as someone who was difficult to work with. Now, interestingly, from a technical standpoint, I'm not sure that these two paragraphs don't describe someone that is difficult to work with on kind of the technical truth of the matter asserted. But obviously, if he's being asked to do things that are illegal or unethical, that creates a different kind of question. Uh, And while the Dolphins might be able to say he was difficult to work with because they wouldn't do the cheating we wanted him to do, that doesn't really get them out of trouble for this description of narrative events. Doesn't make them racially discriminatory. However, it makes them bad or cheaters or something along those lines. So it's interesting to see this framed this way, primarily to describe Mr. Flores as someone that is affected by very, very bad requests. Thus, last week, defendant New York football giants had an opportunity to move a step in the right direction, if even only one. The Giants had the chance to hire Mr. Flores, an eminently qualified black man, to be the first black head coach in the Giants' nearly 100-year history. Instead, the New York Giants made the decision to hire Brian Dabble and disclosed that decision to third parties during a time when the Giants were scheduled to still interview Mr. Flores and when Mr. Flores was deceptively led to believe he actually had a chance at the job. Now, talking about politicization, talking about rhetoric up top, this is one of those paragraphs, paragraph 17, that again... I have a problem with, right? The New York Giants might be evil. They might be the worst run organization in the world. They might have done all of this stuff against the plaintiff in this particular case. But framing it in paragraph 17, that only by hiring Mr. Flores could the New York football Giants start to make amends for the racist history of the NFL. And by hiring someone else, a white someone else, they decided not to take that step in violation of the law is going too far right? And certainly self-aggrandizing. And the plaintiff is paying for this, is going through all this trouble, is not likely to coach the NFL again. So I don't necessarily blame them for taking on this stature of righteousness. Uh, But at the end of the day, this is a little bit strong for what's a football team deciding not to hire a football coach uh, and maybe talking to the Dolphins about why that might be. On Thursday, January 27th, 2022, Mr. Flores had to give an extensive interview for a job that he already knew he would not get, an interview that was held for no reason other than for the Giants to demonstrate falsely to the league commissioner, Roger Goodell, and the public at large that it was in compliance with the Rooney Rule, that the Rooney Rule effectively forced them to discriminate under federal and local law. The Giants would likely have gotten away with this most insidious form of discrimination 
if New York, if New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick had not mistakenly disclosed it to Mr. Flores in the below text messages. And there are pictures on the screen right now. The text messages say effectively, hey, sounds like you've landed. Congrats. Coach asks, hey, did you hear something I didn't? Bill Belichick says, Giants. He says, well, I, I interview in a couple days. I think I have a shot at it. He says, got it. I hear from Buffalo and the Giants that you are their guy. Hope it works out if you want it to. That's definitely what I want. But hey, coach, are you talking to Brian Flores or Brian Dabble? Because they have the same first name, can get lost in the email exchanges and whatnot on the phone. And then he says, I screwed up. I double checked. I misread the text. I think they're naming Dabble. I'm sorry about that. Now, this is designed to be the silver bullet of this case, right? Somebody actually coming out and saying this interview that you have is a sham. And remembering that the NFL doesn't actually have to have the Rooney rule. We get into an interesting situation of, is it discriminatory to have them have an interview to get potentially the the room on your side and to change what otherwise would have been the hiring decision? Uh, Is that discriminatory if you don't intend to hire them in the room before you enter it? That's an open question that would have to be answered by a jury or the courts uh, on that topic. But the other aspect of this is, I think they are naming Dabble suggests, yes, that this is all happening and it's a sham interview. But one could argue, if we imagine what the NFL defense document would look like in this particular case, that I hear they are naming Dabble is essentially just an indication of how positive that interview went. That they think they're going to hire Dabble, but they could be convinced by another interviewee. So, hey, it's not really a sham interview. It's just an interview that is after a candidate that we really, really loved. They think they're gonna name Dabble. I'm adding language there. But it's an open question. It's the kind of thing that the NFL would likely argue. I do think this is strong evidence that the interview was a sham. But one could imagine that Bill Belichick, the NFL, others would say, yeah, I got a call from the Giants that suggested they were thrilled with Dabble. They think they're going to hire him, but they have another interview left. And things can change in that last interview. That was part of the defense of the Rooney rule when it was put into place is get them in the room and more and more of them will be hired. Indeed, in 2019, Mr. Flores was scheduled to interview with the Denver Broncos. This is an indication that this isn't the first time he's had an issue with the Rooney Rule. However, the Broncos then general manager, John Elway, president and chief executive officer Joe Ellis and others showed up an hour late to the interview. They looked completely disheveled, and it was obvious that they had been drinking heavily the night before. It was clear from the substance of the interview that Mr. Flores was interviewed only because of the Rooney Rule and that the Broncos never had any intention to consider him as a legitimate candidate for the job. And anyone that analyzes how the Rooney Rule would operate in reality could figure out that this kind of thing is likely to happen. That has the ring of truth, even though we're not going to look at the statement here in virtual legality. The Broncos have denied all of this and said that they didn't show up late. They have copious notes about the interview, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the overall introductory story here. What Brian Flores is now asking for is where I think he's going to run into a lot of trouble. Among the other relief sought, Mr. Flores seeks the following injunctive relief. If you aren't familiar with that, he wants the court to mandate that the NFL does these things. Increase the influence of black individuals in hiring and termination decisions for general manager, head coach, and offensive and defensive coordinator positions through ensuring a diversity of ownership by creating and funding a committee dedicated to sourcing black investors to take majority stakes in NFL teams and ensuring diversity of decision-making by permitting select black players and coaches to participate in the interviewing process. So, They mandate how the NFL is going to operate in hiring these enormously expensive individuals. 
the court overall is going to be reluctant to do this kind of thing. Obviously, with a strong enough case, courts do this kind of thing all the time. But it's a it's a high burden to clear to ask for more than damages to do these kinds of things and to ask for a company, in fact, a series of companies that make up the NFL to be mandated to do these things. Increase the objectivity of hiring and termination decisions for those roles by requiring NFL teams to reduce to writing the rationale for hiring and termination decisions and requiring NFL teams to consider side-by-side comparisons of objective criteria. The court should force them to analyze these rules in this particular capacity. Increase the number of black offensive and defensive coordinators by creating and funding a training program for lower level black coaches who demonstrate an aptitude for coaching. And so they want the NFL to essentially take on these various roles. Incentivize the hiring and retention of black general managers, head coaches, and offensive and defensive coordinators through monetary draft and other compensation such as additional salary cap space. Now here you get into trouble. Right. As I mentioned, you can't have quotas in the United States. You start to talk in this fashion. Hey, teams that have these people will benefit on the field in the product and service that we offer as an actual profit making entity. You start to get into areas that look like they could potentially have problems on the other side of the coin with United States law and the Supreme Court. And finally, complete transparency with respect to pay for all general managers, head coaches, and offensive and defensive coordinators. And that transparency might be fine. Others might not like that to be shared. That's the kind of thing that could potentially happen. Uh, But again, those are the kinds of steps that the NFL should be taking. These are the kinds of things that you would ask of the NFL in a settlement. And perhaps, because this is a politically and rhetorically minded document, this is trying to set the stage for what they will wind up asking for in a settlement if it came down to it. Next, we see the laws that are actually accused of being violated here. 1981 of the Civil Rights Act, the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination, the New York State Human Rights Law, and the New York City Human Rights Law. And we could take a look at those, but one thing that jumps out at you is what isn't included, right? We've done a lot of looking at EEOC documents and lawsuits against Activision, Blizzard, and others, and there's one law that usually comes up here that isn't included. Now, we can look at 1981. 1981 says all persons within the jurisdiction of the United States shall have the same right to the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of persons and property as is enjoyed by white citizens. This basically says that you have to intentionally discriminate to start running afoul of this. Or as we see in a description of this at Cornell, which is one of the sites that I like to use here, these will of course all be linked in the description of this video. Section 1981 differs from Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Section 1981 applies only to intentional racial discrimination, while Title VII applies to intentional discrimination and disparate impact discrimination on race, color, national origin, sex, or religion. Title VII also, however, requires an EEOC charge to be filed before bringing their claims in court and has a cap on damages. Plaintiffs alleging racial discrimination often allege 1981 and Title VII claims together, provided they have an EEOC charging document and received a right to sue letter from the EEOC. So generally speaking, Title VII gives you a little bit more power in your legal documents of this type because Title VII, you can point to things that are percentages and whatnot and say, hey, regardless of how you feel about these kinds of things, there's a disparate impact and that alone can cause a problem under the law. Title VII is not alleged here. Why? because they are moving very, very, very fast with this document. Paragraph 25, plaintiff will file a charge of discrimination with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, an administrative prerequisite to filing an action under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and will amend this action to include claims under Title VII at the appropriate time, meaning that the EEOC signs off on it, says they're not going to do a separate investigation slash lawsuit, and gives him the individual right to sue. I don't know how common this is in these kinds of documents. 
Frankly, I haven't looked at a lot of 1981 Civil Rights Act claims, but it certainly is suggestive of the speed that this coach, this plaintiff has moved to file this lawsuit because ordinarily you'd want to array all of your weapons against the NFL and Title VII is a pretty effective weapon for the story that you're going to tell in this document. You don't know how this is going to go through the EEOC. You don't know whether you're going to get that letter to sue. Probably you are. Uh, But before you even know, you file this lawsuit when statute of limitations would have allowed you to file it for some time from now. Why does he file it? We can guess. I would guess that it's because we're currently in the two weeks between the championship games and the Super Bowl. And to a certain extent, all eyes are on the NFL. And it's a useful time from a public relations perspective to file a lawsuit like this one, striking while the iron is hot. But it does suggest a certain speediness and alacrity in the filing of this document that maybe doesn't behoove the plaintiff at the end of the day. They say venue is proper here because a substantial part of the events or omissions giving rise to the action includes certain of unlawful employment practices alleged herein occurred in the district, New York, uh, and certainly the defendant National Football League is a trade association with a principal place of business, Park Avenue, New York, New York, is suggestive that venue is probably proper here. Continuing with the document, defendants John Doe teams 1 through 29 are intended to identify NFL teams who have engaged in discriminatory conduct towards the members of the proposed class. We just don't know who's been discriminating against, even though they name the Lions in a couple of places. They don't include them directly uh, in the list. And then we get into uh, realistically a history lesson, right? So we get the factual allegations. And I think we need to back up a step uh, because this is an interesting document. The factual allegations for a lawsuit of this type are supposed to be limited to what your actual factual knowledge is and how you were harmed or how your class was harmed in a case like a class action seeking to be put together. And instead, what we get is a history of the league as effectively racist. Now, that's interesting for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is because the statute of limitations for a 1981 claim is effectively four years, right? We can look at this right here. This section may not be commenced later than four years after the cause of action accrues. So a lot of this is designed to make the reader and potentially the court think bad thoughts about the NFL, but isn't directly on point for even what this class would be allowed to allege for the claims that they want redress for. So This is an interesting state of affairs. I don't love this kind of thing in a legal document, but you can understand why they do it. They have a lot of paragraphs dedicated to this. The league remains mired in a culture that lacks inclusivity and where a barrier to entry still exists today for black professionals and leadership. The first iteration of the NFL began in 1920 and it was rife with racism. There's a number of paragraphs about how few black players were allowed in. It is widely accepted that the NFL used the absence of black players as an opportunity to impose a gentleman's agreement to ban black players entirely. It was not until 1946 that black players re-entered professional football, and this happened when the Cleveland Rams moved to Los Angeles, the publicly funded playing venue, the Los Angeles Coliseum, forced the Rams to integrate at least one black player in order to comply with the Supreme Court's decision in Plessy versus Ferguson that banned segregation in places of public accommodation. Assuming the truthfulness of all these assertions, then what you're trying to show here is that the NFL didn't even do it on its own in 1946. It had to be forced into it. Now, interestingly, none of this kind of stuff is actually within the first person knowledge of the drafter of this document or the plaintiff here. So there's a bunch of sites to articles in the NFL and a history of black protest, African-American intellectual history society, Kenny to get trapped with national league, Los Angeles Tribune. They have to cite to these various other things because this isn't at all describing plaintiff Brian Flores personal situation. 
It took 20 years for the league to hire its first black official. It took 40 years for teams to genuinely accept black players. Now, that doesn't have a legal terminology uh, value. So they put a footnote here talking about how certain black quarterbacks in particular were described in certain articles. It took 43 years for the first black head coach to be hired, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they give this history lesson for a number of pages, but it's designed to show essentially institutional badness in the NFL, not how the NFL might otherwise be manifesting that institutional badness today. Section two, the NFL's ongoing problems with race. History shows that the NFL is synonymous with ownership resistance to anti-racist protest, and that continues to the present day. So then we get discrimination against Colin Kaepernick. If you aren't familiar with this story, he was kneeling during the national anthem to protest certain aspects uh, of the United States, what they describe here as societal racial injustice. They had various folks say he's a starter in the league, but I don't have a space for him on my team. The New York Giants gave Mr. Kaepernick no consideration and suggested that it was because the team feared backlash from the fans if it signed Mr. Kaepernick, a statement that journalists understandably labeled dangerous. Then they use a quote from one specific journalist. Uh, I'm not quite sure where the plural comes from. Uh, But again, what we get if we're being benign about how the NFL operates is a conservatism about public relations that you might have heard this referred to. They control the shield. They are very protective of the shield and they don't want to deal with basically any controversy. So their knee-jerk reaction to this kind of thing was to, yeah, not sign Colin Kaepernick because they thought it would potentially risk the shield. Then you get these paragraphs that say things about completely other things. President Trump referred to a player who protested, clearly referring to Mr. Kaepernick, as that son of a bee. I don't know what that does for your legal document, but certainly if you can drag President Trump into it, I guess it's helpful to certain audiences. And this continues on from here. And I'm somebody that thinks that Colin Kaepernick absolutely was blackballed because he was too loud a voice, because essentially the NFL doesn't like to deal with loudness or squeaky wheels. And they have a history of essentially blackballing folks that they don't think operate within their silence is golden philosophy. Against the backdrop of the league's history, so we see why they included part one, this conduct remains an appalling example of the league's continued problems with race. So it'll be interesting to see how the NFL defends against that kind of thing. It isn't specific to what Brian Flores is actually concerned about, which is defensive, offensive, head coach, GM, those particular roles. But again, they're trying to establish that the NFL is bad. Acquiescence to discrimination by head coach John Gruden. Mr. Gruden, as they say, called United States Vice President Joe Biden a nervous, closely bad word. Mr. Gruden also mocked Caitlyn Jenner, a transgender former Olympic athlete. It simply cannot be a surprise to NFL executives, insiders, and team owners who have collectively spent the last three decades in the proximity of Mr. Gruden that this is who Mr. Gruden is and that these are the beliefs he harbors. Nonetheless, Mr. Gruden remained an inner circle candidate for virtually every head coach position over the 10-year period that followed his departure from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2008. But if you look at this story, and if you aren't familiar with it, in October 2021, certain emails between him and I believe it's the owner of the Washington football team uh, got disclosed, uh, and he said a bunch of bad things. He he is not uh, necessarily a person that you would want to hang out with in terms of how he describes folks uh, and whatnot. And so the suggestion here is the NFL can accept that. He wanted a head coach job. He got one. And the Raiders hiring of Mr. Gruden occurred in close succession with the Raiders' firing of general manager Reggie McKenzie, one of the few black general managers in the league, suggesting, as the plaintiff wants to suggest, a certain amount of racism. 
that NFL can argue here that John Gruden is one of the few people in the world that have won a Super Bowl. And so they're allowed to put up with a lot if they can go win that Super Bowl and they won't put up with much either if they don't think they can win or, as we've been talking about, the stuff that is a problem gets out and causes public relations issues. If I'm arguing on the NFL side for this, I would look at this and say, actually, this proves the opposite point to what you just tried to prove about Colin Kaepernick, which is that the NFL takes action against anybody they think is squeaky or causes noise or causes the NFL to be put in a bad light in various journalistic outlets around the world. And they get rid of them regardless of whether they won a Super Bowl and regardless of whether they're white or not. Now, they frame it a different way, but one can see that the NFL does have some ability to say, essentially, we just don't like noise uh, around our game. Finally, in paragraph 90, I found this one a little bit ironic. Mr. Gruden even had the gall to blame the NFL and Mr. Goodall, claiming that they were responsible, not him for his own actions, for his termination. And this is ironic, primarily because the plaintiff, of course, is blaming the NFL for both being fired and not getting hired in a different circumstance. We don't know how those interviews went. We don't know how the relationship between him and Mr. Ross at the Dolphins actually was. He claims that there were illegal and unethical requests made of him, and that was the only reason he was fired. That might be the case, and that would be a very bad thing for the Dolphins. But there's so much that we don't know. It's interesting to me to see him come down on Mr. Gruden, essentially claiming foul play by the NFL when this is a 58-page document claiming foul play by the NFL. The NFL's concussion settlement discriminated against black players. Uh, and I thought this was a pretty good summary of what I know from afar on this. Uh, the NFL started dealing with concussions and trying to help the players that were harmed by them. As alleged in the concussion lawsuits, the NFL for decades was aware of the evidence and the risks associated with repetitive traumatic brain injuries by actually playing this sport. The claims were consolidated and settled in 2014. And under the settlement agreement, a former player who has a qualifying diagnosis is eligible for monetary benefits. So you go, you get tested, and if it looks like you were affected by your years playing in the NFL, you could get money out of this fund. But according to a lawsuit filed by former black NFL players Kevin Henry and Najee Davenport, as well as media reports, the NFL began regularly insisting that physicians use race norms in determining whether a retiree had suffered cognitive impairment. When black retirees were deemed to be cognitively impaired, the NFL regularly appealed such determinations if race norming was not used. As alleged in that lawsuit, the National Football League has been avoiding paying head injury claims under the settlement agreement based on a formula for identifying qualifying diagnosis that explicitly and deliberately discriminates on the basis of race. When being evaluated for the qualifying diagnoses of neurocognitive impairment, black former players are automatically assumed through a statistical manipulation called race norming to have started with worse cognitive function than white former players. As a result, if a black former player and a white former player receive the exact same raw scores on a battery of tests designed to measure their cognitive functioning, the black player is presumed to have suffered less impairment and he is therefore less likely to qualify for compensation. And this looks awful. And the NFL was pilloried for all of this. And I think justifiably so. I think this is a good kind of section in this document for reminding folks that the NFL did this. But again, on a legal level, it doesn't actually talk about discrimination against your class of candidates for head coaching, general manager, and other positions. Continuing the NFL's attempt to pander during widespread societal racial protests, despite the blatant collusion with Kaepernick, Mr. Goodell declared in a publicly released video that Black Lives Matter and announced that the NFL desired to work with him in the creation and distribution of a $250 million 
foundation for social justice. These remarks and actions emblematic of the phrase too little too late were largely ridiculed by the public as hypocritical and an obvious attempt to pander to growing public sentiment against racial injustice. And here you get a situation where you say, well, what is it that you are looking for? You want the court to force them to do certain things. I tend to agree that the NFL always comes across as pandering. But again, I'm a corporate lawyer. I look at anything that a corporation says and says, you're only doing it because you think it goes with the groundswell of public opinion because you're selling a product or service. So it's always pandering from these entities. And what would you see go differently in a section like this one? Again, I'm asking the question, not because it isn't an interesting story to tell and because the NFL certainly has a lot of skeletons in its closet. And I'm sympathetic to basically everything that the plaintiff raises here, but to ask the question of how it does you any good in terms of actually advancing the ball on your specific legal complaint. Then we get lack of black coaches and the failure of the Rooney rule. We get the double standard quote again that we saw before. We get a history of the Rooney rule. In 2002, Johnny Cochran, civil rights attorney, uh, and some others produced a detailed report on issues with black coaches, superior performance, and inferior opportunities. This is what spurned in 2002 a committee on workplace diversity that was headed by the Pittsburgh Steelers president, Dan Rooney, notably the only team in the NFL that has a black head coach. And I don't know exactly why it isn't brought up here. On December 20th, 2002, the committee issued its recommendations, including that NFL teams make a commitment to interview minority candidates for every head coaching job opening with limited exceptions. And so that was the Rooney Rule. In the 20 years since the Rooney Rule was passed, only 15 head coaching positions have been filled by black candidates. During that time, there have been approximately 129 head coaching vacancies. Thus, only 11% of head coaching positions have been filled by black candidates in a league where 70% of its players are black. And again, this assumes the premise that the player's percentage should tie into the head coaching and other roles percentage in a way that I don't think is warranted, certainly under the law, but even in terms of intuition as to actually allowing a population that aren't just athletes on the, on the field have these roles uh, as well. So we got 11% of head coaching positions. The question to be posed there is what percentage would you seek? Are you looking for 70% of the head coaches to be black? What, what is it that you want out of this? What is fairness to you as you present these facts to us? With few exceptions, the black candidates who have obtained head coaching positions have been on a short leash and lasted for extremely short periods, while white candidates have much lengthier opportunities to prove their worth. Indeed, not a single one of 10 black head coaches hired since 2012 still holds his head coach job today. It's interesting. I don't know why that year was picked. But in contrast, approximately 25% of white head coaches hired during the same time frame remain employed as a head coach. So in the last 10 years, only a quarter of hirees have actually retained their jobs. That does suggest a certain amount of churn and variability in head coaching jobs at the NFL. And it's something that I think anybody that watches these leagues or whatever your favorite sports league are, listener or viewer, knows that these head coaching jobs are not assured and they're very regularly changed over. Moreover, since 2012, black head coaches have been fired in an average of 2.5 years, whereas accounting for head coaches that are expected to return next year, white head coaches have averaged nearly 3.5 years on the job. Now you've got these averages here. I'm interested in what nearly is to you as a legal document, but certainly this is a good piece of rhetoric here. This is a good piece of evidence. Hey, white coaches are getting more time and we can show it with some numbers. So I think that's a pretty effective paragraph for the plaintiff. Moreover, since 1978, only 16 winning teams have fired their head coach or 3% of them of winning teams. Unclear. Even though black men only held a small fraction of the head coach positions during that time, an astounding 25%, four of the 16 of the head coaches fired after a winning season were black. 
This statistic is even more remarkable given that there have only ever been 17 black head coaches who have coached a full season, and four of them were fired after a winning one. In contrast, only 6.9% of white coaches were fired after a winning season, 12 out of 174. Thus, black head coaches are 3.5 times more likely to be fired even when successful. There's a couple things that come up there. Uh, certainly, you can have a coach that gets nine and seven records all the time. That's a winning season and feel like you're mired in mediocrity and decide to move on. The Lions tried to do that. They will come up in this document. They failed because they're the Lions. Uh, but you can make the argument that if you're trying to push for greater success, at some times you have to fire uh, someone who is otherwise kind of middle of the road, regardless of the color of their skin. But this kind of stuff I think is more useful than the rhetoric that they put all up front in the top of their document. I would have rather seen this kind of stuff up front where you're more likely to read things without kind of having your eyes glaze over, whether here in virtual legality or reading the document for yourself. Moreover, unsuccessful white head coaches routinely get second and third chances in critical positions. Indeed, according to a 2021 NFL diversity and inclusion report, since 1963, 116 white individuals have been hired as a head coach or coordinator after an initial head coach opportunity, whereas only 21 individuals of color have received the same second chances. Now, this is a bit of an odd statistic here as compared to what we saw above, because if there are a bunch more white head coaches, we would expect these numbers to kind of look like this if everything is operating in a non-discriminatory capacity. Who gets second chances? 116 white head coaches and 21 black head coaches. Sounds like the black head coaches are getting other opportunities, but we don't know because they're not compared on the same basis. So whereas I think these are pretty effective with the percentages, this starts to look to me like you're hiding the ball of some kind. What is the overall number of head coaches of color that got those second chances as compared to head coaches of color that were fired. Same with white head coaches. And I think you'd see something that looked a little bit less like discrimination if those popped out. So probably not the strongest paragraph here, nothing wrong with it, uh, but these two paragraphs up above, a little bit stronger there. Thus, while the Rooney Rule was and remains well-intentioned, they don't want the Rooney Rule to go away, its effectiveness requires NFL teams to take it seriously and not treat it as a formality that must be endured simply to formalize the predetermined hiring of a white coach. So this is actually arguing that every single interview under the Rooney Rule is a sham. And I don't know that I buy that either. The Rooney Rule wasn't designed to mandate hiring of minority head coaches. It was designed to get them in the room to tell folks what their specialities were and how it would make sense to hire them. But it's not a guarantee because under U.S. law, that's really not something that you can guarantee uh, to any great degree. So you can argue that it's not effective because it was designed to get more folks into the head coaching position, but it is effective in getting them into the room. I think the right place to direct that particular claim is on specific sham interviews that Brian Flores might have a good, strong argument for with the text message and could potentially get past a dismissal on that basis. But overall, the Rooney Rule is a failure because it hasn't actually affected this change. I'm not as convinced on that, especially when the Rooney Rule is extra legal. It's extrajudicial. It isn't required by United States law. It's something that the NFL is trying to do on its own. That very existence would seem to suggest that they're trying to do something, even if it isn't that effective. We don't want institutions to be punished for attempts to do things uh, that don't wind up actually proving the solution. That because it isn't the solution, shouldn't wind up with more legal exposure in general. Racial disparities extend to coordinator and general manager positions. These positions are very often filled by a pool of former players, approximately 70% of whom are black. They use this stat a lot. I would note that coordinators are also often filled by a pool of non-former players and other folks coming up through various other ranks. 
This shows that not only are NFL head coaches predominantly white, but that the pipeline feeding this racial disparity is fraught with discrimination. Because there aren't enough black coordinators, we got 12.5% offensive and 34% black uh, uh, defensive, that those two percentages aren't good enough. Those are what become head coaches most often, especially offensive coordinators. And so it's a fraught with discrimination at the coordinator level as well. All of this evidence, if you back up a step and you think about it, is all kind of conditional. It's all disparate impact. It's all showing that these percentages exist and the assumption is they could not possibly exist for any reason but for racism. But they aren't actually stating that the NFL is directly and deliberately being racist, just that we can assume they are based on the effects and based on the identities of these people in this various role. That is a inherently weaker claim than, oh, I've got emails, I've got statements, I've got proof that they are deliberately discriminating against black candidates in these roles. Everything else is impact-based in this document. And that is not as strong as documents can be when you're talking about these particular topics. The lack of representation of black general managers doubtlessly leads to the lack of black head coaches. So we talked about coordinators going up to head coach. Now the document talks about problems at the general manager level, the folks that hire head coaches. It stands to reason that whether explicit or implicit, white decision makers tend to favor white candidates for significant positions, as numerous studies suggest there is same race bias in decision making. Organizational studies have shown that people are most likely to hire others of the same race and that bias among decision makers can affect the diversity of the entire organization. Here you've got an interesting problem because for the most part, you're trying to prove intentional discrimination and you're suggestive of a reason here, implicit bias, that you, dear viewer or listener, don't necessarily have to agree with as stated, but from a legal perspective would act against the concept of intentional discrimination. If it's implicit, it's not intentional. And you see these kinds of interactions in these documents, uh, and certainly in this one, that could potentially scuttle all of the arguments that you make if the NFL effectively says, okay, so we have too many white general managers. We can continue to try to have more black general managers, but we're certainly not trying to discriminate against anybody. And that's what you have to prove to make your case. Notable recent examples of discriminatory conduct, A, Brian Flores, the lead plaintiff and ostensible head of the class here. Mr. Flores managed to navigate and avoid the perils of drugs, gangs, and violence in one of the city's toughest neighborhoods and grew to love his home neighborhood and city in Brooklyn, New York. In 2019, on the heels of his outstanding performance with the Patriots, Mr. Flores was offered the Miami Dolphins head coach position. Mr. Ross told Mr. Flores that he would pay him $100,000 for each game lost that year. We saw these up above. And Mr. Ross began to pressure Mr. Flores to recruit a prominent quarterback in violation of league tampering rules. Over the remaining year and a half of Mr. Flores' tenure at the helm of the Miami Dolphins, he was routinely made to feel uncomfortable based upon his decision not to tank in order to secure the top pick in the 2019 draft. Upon information and belief, so this is a statement that says, we don't actually know this, but we're willing to tell the court this is true. No white head coach has ever been subjected to such ridicule over winning and holding the spirit of the game in such high regard. Now, disregarding the typo on the word spirit here, that is a crazy assertion to make. Upon information and belief, I'm willing to attest to this, to the court, no white head coach has ever been subjected to the ridicule over winning. No owner in the history of the NFL has ever wanted to get a higher draft pick and been a little bit frustrated or more against the coach that they've hired of any race in that particular circumstance. I have a lot of trouble believing that. As a Lions fan, 
who regularly about halfway through the season starts to root for them to lose, to try to get better somehow in the following years with a better draft pick. It is almost impossible for me to imagine that owners haven't ridiculed all sorts of coaches for screwing up that possibility. Continuing, the complaint argues that he was just told he was being terminated for poor collaboration, which the complaint describes as itself having discriminatory undertones. I would love a better explanation of that, how stating that somebody has poor collaboration, creative differences, those kinds of things, which are so standard when people part ways, has discriminatory undertones. Section 137, Mr. Flores' only failure to collaborate was his refusal to tank the 2019 season as has been requested by Mr. Ross. That itself is interesting. So the argument here is attested to to the court is that there was never any other frustrating conversation. There was never any other issue with how he was operating his team versus how the owner wanted to do it. It was only his refusal to tank the 2019 season that was the ever a friction point between him and his ownership. What did that mean when he says after he did that, it became more discriminatory or more aloof and all these various things that are alleged in this document that he knows that that 2019 season was the nexus point for what presumably was other failures to collaborate on some level. So this is interesting. Now he's the plaintiff. He's allowed to say the story he wants to say. I would be very surprised if there weren't other friction points between him and the owner and how he operates a team. Could that be discriminatory? Could Mr. Ross be a racist? I don't know. And certainly if he is, it might manifest in the way that Brian Flores is accusing it of here. But there are other ways to look at this and say, ah, some of these statements go a little far for my liking. And I'd be interested to see what Mr. Ross and the NFL would wind up saying here. The New York Giants subject Mr. Flores to a sham interview. The two spoke via telephone, according to Mr. McDonald, the Giants and owner John Mara. We're extremely interested in hiring him for the team's vacant head coaching position. Mr. Schoen, who had recently been announced as the Giants' new general manager, beating out multiple black candidates for the job, began the process of scheduling an interview with Mr. Flores. So this is January 23. This is a week ago. Unfortunately, just hours after Mr. Flores learned that the Giants' continued courtship was nothing more than a discriminatory facade designed to show false compliance with the Rooney rule. Indeed, on January 24th, Mr. Flores received a text message from Bill Belichick. We looked at those already. Clearly by midday Monday, the Giants had already decided to hire Mr. Dabble and communicated the decision to third parties, including Mr. Belichick. I would love an answer as to how Mr. Belichick, the coach of the New England Patriots, got involved in this series of conversations or why he would leak that out. Uh, to somebody, I, he's clearly not concerned with confidences or, or non-disclosure agreements as much as I am uh, as a lawyer, uh, but it is interesting part of the story. Certainly, I think this text is pretty useful to the plaintiff and his particular claim, whether or not it's useful to class actions and whatnot, I have my doubts. But for Mr. Belichick's error, Mr. Flores never would have known of this fact. This revelation not only impugns and viciously exposes the sham process to which Mr. Flores was subjected, but also stands to indict the Giants' organizational hiring practices in general. The Giants' treatment of Mr. Flores is consistent with its past. The Giants have never hired a black head coach. Mr. Flores would have been the team's first. This demonstrates that the Giants interview black candidates solely because of the NFL's mandate and for no other reason. Which, if we're really thinking about why the Rooney rule exists, it's essentially to counterbalance these kinds of arguments. 
that there are racists in the NFL or there are potential racial concerns at the ownership or other levels. And so we're going to mandate these interviews and make it better. That's why the Rooney rule was always silly. That's why it was pandering. That's why it was arguably racist itself is that you don't solve that particular issue with that particular solution. And so I have no doubts that there have been plenty of sham interviews from either the Giants or other teams in the NFL over the course of the history of the Rooney rule. But not hiring Brian Flores does not itself demonstrate that the Giants are racist. Having this particular sequence of events where you don't hire Terrell Austin of the Lions, who I think was great, I think he would have been a great head coach, uh, doesn't make you racist necessarily. It means the interview maybe didn't go well. It means some other reason could be in the midst of all these things. And unfortunately, the plaintiff here doesn't have firsthand knowledge of all of these things. So effectively, they take histories and say, because there wasn't a black head coach, that means they're racist. And that's going to be a problem for the law and the requirements of actually meeting the elements that the law requires. We talk about the prior sham interview with the Denver Broncos. It was clear from the substance of the interview that Mr. Flores was interviewed only because of the Rooney rule. The hiring of Steve Mariucci. I promised you some Lions stuff. In 2003, soon after the Rooney rule was adopted, the Detroit Lions were looking for a head coach and team president Matt Millen, the stupidest general manager in the history of the NFL, made it clear that the team expected to hire Steve Mariucci. Likely because the Lions' intention to hire Mr. Mariucci was made so well known by the team's general manager, five minority coaching candidates understandably turned down interviews. Wouldn't even give him the time of day because they felt like the Rooney Rule interviews wouldn't be anything but shams. The Lions could not bring people in and they violated the Rooney Rule, fining the team a paltry, according to the complaint, $200,000. Paltry for these organizations, certainly not an insubstantial amount of money to the rest of us. Uh, but that is supposed to be evidence of discriminatory behavior, uh, right? That they only got fined 200 grand for not doing this. The Lions continue their record of recklessness. Jim Caldwell fired after winning seasons and replaced by white coaches. They, they were fired uh, at the Colts after they lost Peyton Manning and the team fell to two and 14, despite his past successes and the justifiable reasons for his poor record. In one season out of three, Mr. Caldwell was fired. Now, you could frame it that way, absolutely. You could also frame it as Peyton was winning those games. He was the coach, and Tony and and Mr. Caldwell, Jim Caldwell, wasn't doing much to help bring the team wins. Now we hired him over at Detroit Lions Central, and fell to seven and nine in 2015. But then nine and seven in 2016, and nine and seven again in 2017. Thus, Mr. Caldwell had three winning seasons in four years for one of the historically worst franchises in the NFL. That's right, in a federal legal document. My Detroit Lions are described as one of the historically worst franchises in the NFL, and I think that's an accurate statement of their history. But no, what we're talking about here, seven and nine, nine and seven, nine and seven, is not lighting the world on fire, despite the next paragraphs pointing out that his 36 and 28 record, a winning percentage of 563, was the best winning percentage of any Lions head coach since the 1950s. Yes, we're really good at American football here in the Motor City. We fired him, and the Lions have gone 17 and 46 since his departure with only white head coaches. Now, I personally don't think the Lions fired Mr. Caldwell because he was black. I think they fired him because they had delusions of grandeur that they could improve on nine and seven. That was the zeitgeist here in Detroit when that happened. And then the Lions falling completely on their face with hiring a bunch of idiot stooges is the way the Lions operate. Is that racist? I don't believe so. I don't think Jim Caldwell was a very effective head coach, uh, but certainly he was more effective than the parade of horribles that the Lions have put forth on the Detroit fandom since. You then get other statements all like this 
folks getting fired, folks getting hired by uh, either uh, white guys or, or black guys getting fired too quickly. All this stuff continues and continues and continues. All things that you can read on a Wikipedia page, not really anything that is personally understood uh, by this plaintiff, and all under the auspices that is suggestive of systematic institutional racism because it happened this way. Here we have Terrell Austin from the Lions again, getting referenced, all sorts of things here, pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. And then we start to actually get into the legal ease of it all, right? So rule 23 class action allegations, class definition is to be all black head coach, offensive and defensive coordinators and quarterbacks coaches, as well as general managers and black candidates for those positions during the applicable statute of limitations period, the last four years. So, so back into 2018. So all of that that you just heard described in the history of the NFL and what it was doing in the 1930s and various other things with Colin Kaepernick and that kind of thing, none of that applies here. We're talking about black candidates for these jobs and how they were treated when they got those jobs in terms of early termination and those kinds of things. That's who they would seek as the class members in this lawsuit. The unlawful conduct suffered by plaintiff and the members of the proposed class includes discriminatorily denied positions, discriminatorily subjected to sham interviews, uh, discriminatory retention policies and practices, uh, disparate terms and conditions of employment, different contract terms, and unequal compensation relative to their white peers. It's more than 40 people during the applicable period. So we have the numbers that we need. We have common laws, uh, common questions of law and fact, whether members of the class have been denied positions, whether members of the class have been discriminatorily subject to sham interviews, whether members of the class have been subjected to discriminatory retention policies, the same things that kind of mirror what we saw above. But the issue here is not in those kinds of questions. As I discussed earlier in this very, very long video, thank you for joining me in virtual legality. It's the typicality of claims sought that I think is the biggest issue. They assert, as they have to, to try to go seek a class, that the claims of the plaintiff are typical of the claims of the proposed class in that they all arise from the same unlawful patterns, practices, or policies of defendants and are based on the legal theory that these patterns, practices, and policies violate legal rights. Now, ostensibly, policies of the NFL and the NFL teams don't violate those rights. They have the Rooney Rule in place. They have those interviews. They undoubtedly have language throughout their governance documents that say it's an equal opportunity employer. It's going to abide by federal law and all these various things. But what happened to these individuals as alleged through all these many pages, we're on page 49 here, is what is purported to be illegal. The problem is each and every instance is different, dealing with different people, different teams, different decision makers in different contexts uh, for different people and different resumes. So I look at this and say, that's a difficult thing to claim is all part of the same class uh, because the law, as I mentioned before, wants to make sure that a class action isn't taking on folks that have different claims and globbing them all into one ball. You ordinarily see class actions for things that are obviously the same in terms of typicality. Uh, stockholders in a company that was lying to the public. They have stock. That is what it is. Not things that are all based on decisions like this. Doesn't mean it can't happen. But when you bring in 30 employers, 31 if you include the association, the league itself, with however many people doing different interviews in different contexts, I look at it and say it's very difficult for me to imagine a, a justifiable class action. I pulled up a random law uh, blog on this topic while I was researching it for this video. And I found a quote that I thought was useful. 
A necessary consequence of the typicality requirement is that the representative's interests be aligned with those of the represented group. And in pursuing his own claims, the named plaintiff will also advance the interests of the class members. Some might be worse than what Brian Flores is describing. Some might be better. Each instance, though, is worthy of its own adjudication and consideration, so it might be certified. I never make guarantees about what a judge is going to do or how these courts are going to operate, but I do see a potential problem with what could be a group of people that have wildly different concerns, wildly different situations, all being put into one single class action. This continues for a while until we get to actually bringing the causes of action. The first, discrimination under section 1981. I read that to you at the top and they don't actually point us to any specifics here, but they do say, as described above, defendants have discriminated against plaintiff in the proposed class on the basis of race and or color in violation of 1981 by discriminatorily denying class members positions as coaches and coordinators and general managers, discriminatorily subjecting them to the sham interviews, subjecting the class members to discriminatory retention practices, subjecting the class members to disparate terms of employment, and subjecting class members to unequal compensation. All the things that they mention in the class. Each defendant has actually participated in and aided and abetted the discriminatory conduct of the other defendants, which is interesting in and of itself. You got the Dolphins and the Broncos up there, so you're actually alleging a kind of conspiracy to discriminate here at this point. And it was reckless, malicious, willful, and wanton. Why? As we've said, when we look at any of these lawsuits, that's because those are the magic words to get you into punitive damage land, where you can start to get money that isn't just what you can allege was lost, but also money that would punish the body in question. An NFL being as rich as it is could have significant punitive damages if the court found that it was an issue. Then you get very, very, very similar claims that I won't bore you with in the various statutes that are local to New York. You've got the New York state law, equality of opportunity is a civil right, the opportunity to obtain employment without discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. And there's other rules here. They don't actually point us to specific areas of these sections, so I can't point them to you either. But it's the same kind of thing that we saw on the federal claim, reckless, malicious, punitive damages. And then the New York state law also allows for the New York city law. We see a very similar kind of setup here. Unlawful discriminatory practices covered the same way that we see in the federal laws. So they bring that one up. They don't point us to any specific statute here again, but same kind of complaint. And then because we're also talking about potential issues in New Jersey, where the giants actually operate, they bring in New Jersey for one final bite at the apple here, talking about employment discrimination and on a very similar scope to federal law. And I can't claim any special expertise in how New Jersey, New York City, or New York State actually enforce these things or interpret them, but they're all one in the same claim. And notably, as I mentioned above, they do not include Title VII, which they have claimed is going to go through the EEOC process, but whether or not that winds up in something that's useful to them, they don't have a Title VII claim in this document as it stands right now, even though they have 60 pages of disparate impact analysis and very little in the course of showing specific discrimination either against Brian Flores himself or these other parties that they would have enter the purported class. We get the prayer for relief, a declaratory judgment that the actions, conduct, and practices of the defendants violate the laws that are alleged, injunctive relief necessary to cure defendants' discriminatory policies and practices as summarized above, very, very difficult to get uh, in this context, damages, 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 and such other further relief as the court may deem just and proper. And that, after a mere hour and 15 minutes, is the case as presented. Now, as I said, 
This is an area of significant sensitivity for a number of folks, and I don't blame anybody for feeling that sensitivity when we discuss these matters. And I don't blame anybody for just saying I hate the NFL, and I can believe every single thing that somebody says about them because Roger Goodell is an ass, like many lawyers, hopefully not all lawyers if you're here in virtual legality, uh, but that I don't like the NFL, and I think that they deserve a comeuppance on this kind of thing. As a legal document, however, I do have to point out that it seems much more political, much more rhetorically driven than I'm used to seeing. And while it might get past summary dismissal, while it might get through to a place where the NFL would really have to consider how much it wants people diving into its emails and phone calls and everything else, I don't tend to like this approach where you could be pleading your specific issue with how you were discriminated against with your strong evidence like that text message and instead are seeking to be a hero of a class that I don't think will necessarily be certified due to the difficulties we've explained and describing yourself as righteous with a first paragraph talking about Black History Month, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now we do have a number of statements here that I wanted to talk about as we exit this video. The first is Brian Flores's. God has gifted me with a special talent to coach the game of football, but the need for change is bigger than my personal goals. In making the decision to file the class action complaint, I understand that I may be risking coaching the game I love and has done so much for my family and me. My sincere hope is that by standing up against systemic racism in the NFL, Others will join me to ensure that positive change is made for generations to come. So there's there's a certain amount of righteousness here in the claim. I think that's how you have to go out with a complaint like this. Uh, whether or not it is foolish righteousness, whether it's uh, quixotic, uh, will be up for the NFL, the court of public opinion, and others to judge outside of virtual legality. Uh, but it is interesting that he does note, he was advised well, I think, by his counsel that you do this you're unlikely to coach in the NFL again. And there is a certain amount of bravery uh, and uh, something to look forward to uh, in that kind of statement where you say, hey, I'm willing to give that up uh, to go after this kind of thing. I, I do respect that uh, a great deal. New York Giants, who are, of course, at the heart of this thing, say we are pleased and confident with the process that resulted in our hiring of Brian Dabble. We interviewed an impressive and diverse group of candidates. The fact of the matter is Brian Flores was in the conversation to be our head coach until the 11th hour. Ultimately, we hired the individual we felt was most qualified to be our next head coach. And again, that kind of goes with what we would expect the defense to be to a statement from Bill Belichick, who isn't associated with this uh, entity at all, sending a text essentially to the wrong person uh, and what the New York Giants meant when they told, apparently, Bill Belichick that they thought Dabble was their guy. Uh, there will be an argument that they meant, yes, he had a fantastic interview. We think we're going to hire him, but we still have to go to all of our interviews and we will walk into those interviews with an open mind. The Dolphins, Stephen Ross's organization, as we talked about in the document, says, no, none of this is true. We are aware of the lawsuit through the media reports that came out this afternoon. We vehemently deny any allegations of racial discrimination and are proud of the diversity and inclusion throughout our organization. The implication that we acted in a manner inconsistent with the integrity of the game is incorrect. We will be withholding further comment on the lawsuit at this time, always wise when faced with a pending lawsuit. And the NFL itself says the NFL and our clubs are deeply committed to ensuring equitable employment practices and continue to make progress in providing equitable opportunities throughout our organizations. Diversity is core to everything we do, and there are a few issues on which our clubs and our internal leadership teams spend more time. We will defend against these claims, which are without merit. All the claims, apparently, and some called the NFL to task, although I have to give the NFL credit for reporting on this pretty fulsomely on the NFL.com. Uh, so I do want to give credit to that. Uh, but otherwise, the NFL did immediately disclaim everything. The Giants disclaimed everything. The Broncos disclaimed everything. The Dolphins disclaimed everything. And while I think there are certain weaknesses in the way this particular document is presented from a legal perspective, 
it is undoubtedly the case that the NFL is likely to have a public relations backlash to all of this, which may well have been the point that Brian Flores was trying to make in the first instance. Hopefully this was enlightening. I know a number of you don't like American football. I know more than 50% of you aren't in the United States, uh, but I do like to go over some more serious lawsuits from time to time. Uh, leave a comment in the description, whether you found this useful, whether you found this interesting, and what you feel about this lawsuit, the NFL, uh, and maybe your favorite sports league that might be going through similar issues uh, in a comment to this video. Otherwise, Thank you so much for checking it out. This is a Patreon-supported channel. We cannot do it without the support of viewers and listeners like you. Please do go check that out. We've got some great tiers that I think have some great rewards, including question time that we do every month and some other things that you might like to help support the channel with. Otherwise, if you just want to subscribe, ring the bell, upvote, downvote, telling your friends that we're having conversations like this, hopefully intellectual, educational, informative, and entertaining discussions about the news of the day, lawsuits, law, and business. Tell your friends that we're having them. Every little bit helps get viewers to this channel, and YouTube loves viewers for its little bots and its little algorithms. If you did catch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching, and if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.